This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. Are there any uh, folks here for the first time today? Great, welcome. So I'm going to start with a... um, a koan story, uh, and this is one that appears in, in both the Muman Khan, uh, or the Gateless Gate, and also in the Book of Serenity. Changsha um, <clears throat> had a monk ask Master Hui, How was it before you saw Nanquan? Hui was silent. The monk said, How about after seeing him? Hui said, There couldn't be anything else. The monk returned and related this all to Changsha. Upon hearing uh, the interaction, Changsha said, The man sitting atop the hundred-foot pole. Though he's gained entry, this is not yet real. Atop the hundred-foot pole, he should step forward. The universe in all directions is the whole body. Um, and that's the translation from the Book of Serenity. Uh, the last line in the Muman Khan says, And worlds of the ten directions are your total body. So does it feel sometimes like we're standing on a hundredth pole? <clears throat> There's um, a commentator that I like that says, um, Gary Shishin Wick gives a lovely and simple recap of the intent of this koan. He says, quote, Here Master Ch- uh, Changsha is encouraging us to take a step forward from wherever we may be. Each of us is stranded on a hundred-foot pole, We may have climbed up for the view, or we may have fallen to it from another perch. No matter where we are in our Zen practice or our life, we're always standing on top of a hundred-foot pole. But we must not rest there. We must step forward into the unknown in order to experience the boundless life. So does a sense of um, anxiety arise in just hearing those words? I think this practice is um, courageous stuff, you know. Um, And sometimes we have to remind ourselves of that. Sometimes we might uh, get stuck on top of the 100-foot pole, you know, unwilling to step forward. Um, and what is our life like then? You know, what does that feel like to be stranded in that little space of the top of a pole? I think that's most of our lives, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and then we and then occasionally we, we have this courage to step forward and see what happens. When I was um, Chousseau or head monk um, at City Center um, under uh, my and Mako's teacher, Paul Holler, um, there's a ceremony at the beginning of the Chousseau. It's a sort of opening or becoming the Chousseau, you know, which you will then be for this three-month period. And it's pretty formulaic. There's a kind of script to it, and uh, it's very Japanese in some way. Um, and you're supposed to kind of act out this routine where the teacher three times asks you to share their seat, um, and three times you say, you know, I'm not worthy, I'm not ready, I want to stay on this hundred-foot pole. <laughs> um, and I remember that in this interaction with um, my teacher, um, the third time I kind of asked, or the third time 
guess it was the second time he asked, and then my response was, um, we were kind of varying it a little bit, like, uh, and he suddenly went off script. Um, and he said something that really penetrated me, which was, um, I don't even remember what I said. I was expressing some, you know, pretty genuine doubt about, you know, my own abilities or, um, yeah, and he he said something like, um, if you step forward, the whole universe rushes in to, um, to catch you, to take care of you. And I knew that that was true when he said it to me, you know. Um, maybe I knew that before he said it and I needed to be reminded you know I don't know but um, it's helpful to have friends and teachers that encourage us to um, step off our kind of little spot that we know so well so it's often joked about that um, that there's one ceremony, actually one ceremony in Zen. It's not exactly true, but there's a, um, you know, a taking, taking the precepts, um, and these are the 16 bodhisattva precepts, are kind of at the heart of Zen religious practice. And... Um, <clears throat> We can kind of practice taking them, you know, in the full moon ceremony, the bodhisattva ceremony. We all chant them, you know. There's a kind of call and call and response. Um, and then there are certain moments where we choose to kind of more formally accept these um, these vows. Um, and uh, one is a ceremony called Zaike Tokudo, which means um, staying home and uh, accepting the way. Um, and this is what's considered a lay ordination in Zen. Um, and there's a ceremony called Shuke Tokudo, which is um, leaving home and accepting the way. Um, and that is sort of full priest ordination. Um, and these ceremonies are quite similar. Mostly they're the same, and it's the same 16 bodhisattva precepts. But I also, you know... Uh, in a Zen temple, I don't know if anybody's been to a wedding in a Zen temple, but the sort of um, usual ceremony is um, that the person conducting the ceremony, the priest, or um, offers this new this couple the sixteen bodhisattva precepts. Um, I don't know if anybody's been to a funeral in Zen temples, but um, the kind of heart of the ceremony is offering this departed um, friend and loved one the 16 bodhisattva precepts. So it's kind of all over the place. Uh, And we don't always, uh, maybe until we're ready to kind of take that step into formal religious practice, or even to try it on. I don't think there's a kind of like it's not a zero and a one kind of binary thing um, to me, but um, um, yeah, it's interesting that in all these different circumstances of our life, kind of Zen is pointing us back to, okay, here's 16 things to just kind of keep in mind, to keep practicing with. And that is, you know, I think that is genuinely the intention in Zen, is to practice with these things. It doesn't mean, um, you know, we vow to, to not do something or to do something. Um, so the, the first three of the 16 are taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So we might in some way, in some ceremony, vow to do that. Um, and this ten grave precepts are the last of the sixteen, so we might vow not to do something that um, 
this teaching is, is kind of helping us understand might be harmful for ourselves or others. Uh, but genuinely, the intention is not that we vow and then we become perfect beings and we don't um, slip up. Or that when we do slip up, we are um, so self-critical that um, we no longer pr- decide to practice with them. You know, well, I gave it a shot and I failed, so you know, I'll move on to something else. So the intention is really to just keep um, <coughs> practicing with them, and that means to like um, have hold them in mind and see, you know. How, our, how we actually act in, in terms of our intention versus our reality um, and study that closely. And, and what helps us in that study is to kind of withhold as much judgment as we're capable of for ourselves. you know, that if we slip up, like, oh, that didn't go well, you know, or, or I can even see the consequences of breaking my own vow, but it's not, it doesn't have to take that further step into, and that means I'm a bad person and, you know, I'm a failure and the things our mind naturally um, can do, for sure. So my, my first teacher, um, Joshua Pat Phelan of the Chapel Hill Zen Center, was giving a talk one time and she mentioned that um, Chinese master Sheng Yen um, relayed that a common saying in Mahayana Buddhism is having vows to break is the bodhisattva's path. Not having vows to break is a non-Buddhist path. Or So there's an encouragement to, to, to have vows to break. That's interesting. Um, and in a way, I think that's an encouragement to step off our usual way, to step off our kind of the way we see the world and interact with the world and maybe try on some new way of um, being and interacting with the world. Hmm. So um, I don't want to... I mean, this is a vast field of precept practice and it's not the only practice in Zen, you know. Um, Zazen is also a fundamental practice. So just seeing, just sitting um, in awareness with our own body and mind openly. Um, But the aspect of the precepts that I did want to kind of look at today um, is this taking refuge. Um, Taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So there's lots of ways to even consider what seems like a simple um, practice, you know. But very quickly we can kind of it can get deeper in the sense of like what do we mean when we say Buddha? When you know well actually the first question might be, what does it mean to take refuge? Are there kind of thoughts that come to mind um, right away when I say, what does it mean to take refuge? Safety. Safety. Trust. Trust. Yeah. It seems like it's an activity, like an action. You know, we're doing something. So maybe it's like trusting or trust is the thing that we're kind of going towards. But I found it helpful, uh, you know, a number of Buddhist teachers that I've read have said, because I think there is a, there's a fear, there's a fear of religious life, for one, um, and there's a fear of making a commitment that I'm not sure I can um, keep up with, you know, that I, that I might fail at, so maybe I won't do it. Um, but I found it helpful that a number of Buddhist teachers have pointed out that um, in one way we are always taking refuge in something. So it's not like don't take refuge or take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. 
Um, what is it that we actually are taking refuge in? You know, where do we go in our life for safety? You know, to feel trusted or trusting. You know, there's lots of answers there, and they're they're wholesome and unwholesome things. Um, you know. But it, it does have something to do with safety, I think. It's like when I feel unsafe or I feel um, off, what do I, where do I go to kind of regain my own balance or safety or sense of trust? You know, it might be in a, in a Netflix movie. You know? It might be in a slice of chocolate cake. You know? um, it might be an exercise or being with friends. Um, the options are kind of endless, but I think when we consider, um, you know, this triple treasure of taking refuge in Buddha and Dharma and Sangha, and maybe we don't feel ready to kind of, you know, maybe that's not for me, you know. But I think the first step is to just study what is it that I'm already taking refuge in. And the thing about safety is that we, um, I think there's a kind of hidden assumption or, or desire that this is a lasting thing, maybe even permanent, you know. Where do I go to find kind of total rest? And I think, um, as a number of teachers have pointed out, um, when we really look at where do I go for refuge, I think we, we can see that almost all of these things, or probably all of these things, are impermanent, are fleeting. Um, and the safety that we acquire in going to them is itself fleeting, um, short-lived and in a sense untrustworthy. Maybe it works for a while. So I think um, the encouragement in in Buddhist practice is that to, um, if we're always taking refuge in something, um, maybe we can consciously take refuge in something that is actually maybe a little more lasting a little more stable. And that stability might give us some comfort or relief. Um, So traditionally, the the three are Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And the very kind of surface level is Buddha, is is Shakyamuni Buddha. Um, Dharma means the teaching of the Buddha. Although... Quite often, it also just means reality. So the Buddha's teaching was just pointing at the reality, and mostly the reality of our mind, the reality of how we perceive the world. Um, But uh, So Dharma could be either his teaching, meaning sutras, things he said, or the truth of reality. And Sangha is the group of, traditionally, the group of monks who practice with the Buddha. And then, you know, pretty quickly that becomes um, practitioners of any kind or spiritual friends of any kind. And eventually Sangha means the whole world and everything in it. So... um, you know, just as, as Mako was mentioning in last week's talk about there is a kind of, there's always two sides to any kind of concept in Zen practice. And she was uh, last week talking about the Bodhisattva model. And there's a kind of um, conventional way of seeing the Bodhisattva as um, somebody willing to help and kind of looking for places to help. Um, but there's also the the kind of ultimate version of the bodhisattva as just somebody who's kind of um, taking part in this vast Buddha mind is um, 
given up on some individual idea of this is me and I'm trying to help this person. And it's the same with the precepts. You know? So we can look at all of these precepts in a conventional way, like this is me personally trying to do, vowing to, to kind of live a certain way. But ultimately, the, the precepts are about kind of entering and flowing with ultimate reality in a kind of unselfconscious way. So maybe we have to be, you know, maybe the practice of that is to be conscious, to study what I take refuge in, what that, what's that results in for my life, you know. Um, what would it be like if I took refuge in something maybe more, more lasting? Um, you know, and, and through practicing that, we kind of gain this ability to settle into just being part of reality. And then we don't have to consciously, so consciously say, this is me doing this particular practice. So one of the teachers that so most beautifully um, expresses this kind of non-dual understanding of precepts um, is uh, Dainian Katagiri Roshi. Um, Prior to entering this path of the 16 Bodhisattva precepts, in any ceremony there's a kind of section of... um, repentance or renunciation and this is part of entering a vow is to say the reason I'm going to this um, practice the reason I'm vowing to uphold these new ways of seeing the world is because I'm leaving behind the ones I'm so familiar with because they're maybe not working so well for me so the three um, refuges or the three treasures are the first three precepts, but it's usually preceded directly by the repentance. And in during practice periods here in the mornings after we get up from sitting zazen, the first thing we do is chant these repentances. And I'll just read it, the verse. It just says, All my ancient twisted karma, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion. So these are the three poisons of Buddhism. Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. And I'm not sure of the technical definition of avow, but I always, it feels to me like I, I acknowledge, you know. Um, I think that's like, before we do something about it, before we change our behavior or attempt to, um, the first step is just seeing what we do. Or seeing how it turns out for us. So I think a vowel, to me, mostly just means I acknowledge this karma that I carry around. And it's not so personal if I, if I really believe in multiple lifetimes or, or even the kind of metaphor of multiple lifetimes in my own life. Um, this person I am right now... Um, is the, is the kind of um, endpoint of many causes and conditions, including my former selves, you know, my little child Tim, you know, my little, my college Tim, you know, and so the, where I am right now um, is the accumulation of experiences of some beings that actually don't feel like who I am now. So there's a way that it's not personal, like my karma is just my karma. What led me here led me here. And I don't have to, you know, I think avowal or acknowledgement is, um, is possible if I consider it personal or non-personal. If it, if it was me that led me here, okay, I acknowledge that. If it was some um, other beings, other lifetimes, whatever kind of um, model kind of makes sense to you, that led me here, and it's not personal, okay, I acknowledge that too. Like, a vowel doesn't require um, this sense of a continuous me that's kind of led me here.
So, um, <clears throat> Katagiri Roshi says of repentance, <clears throat> the first condition that we should realize the world, the first condition, being the condition, uh, he sets out three conditions of repentance. Uh, I'll start there. <laughs> He says, when contemplating the significance of repentance in Zen Buddhism, there are three conditions to consider. That we should realize the world of the compassionate heart, that the self must readily accept the compassion of Buddha's world, that we must set in motion the interactive communion between us and the universe. Wow, set in motion the interactive communion between us and the universe. I love that because it's the it's the particular it's the it's the individual and the ultimate kind of in one. Um, because the <coughs> the communion between us and the universe is already taking place. This is that's sort of the definition of Dharma. The truth of reality is that we are all appearing um, out of one emptiness. Um, so we are communing with uh, ultimate reality, whether we know it or not. But I love that he says, we set in motion the interactive communion between us and the universe. So then the individual is kind of um, setting some intention to acknowledge this communion that might already exist. So he explains further, the first condition that we should realize the world, oh, that we should realize the world of, of the compassionate heart is to accept and forgive all beings without exceptions. The Buddhas and ancestors are human beings who realize this truth that the same and one ground of existence, where all sentient beings coexist in peace and harmony from moment to moment, is profoundly compassionate, accepting all sentient beings without exception. So if ultimate reality is already accepting everything, why shouldn't we? Maybe that's how we commune with ultimate reality. If you realize this truth, and realize always means some kind of activity, like realize isn't like, oh, I understand it with my mind, but if I embody this truth, you are called Buddha. The truth is called Dharma or Dharma body. Whatever we feel from our lives, animate and inanimate beings are peacefully embraced by this compassion. This is why we can live every day beyond making mistakes or not making mistakes, beyond failure or success, beyond pros and cons. We have to live to appreciate and to understand this compassion. It is not something we need to try to understand. Even though we may be able to <clears throat> explain the total picture of the universe using many words, practically speaking, we don't really understand it. All we have to do is to put ourselves in the heart of this compassion, right in the middle of the vastness of the universe. So does that sound like any kind of definition of repentance that you've ever heard before in your life? <clears throat> so we can kind of cringe at the words, take refuge, repent. I mean, repent has a lot of connotations. Um, but maybe don't let that stop us. Maybe what the words are encouraging us to do is something we kind of long to do already. Um, to place our life in the compassionate heart of the universe. To commune in that um, compassionate heart. And maybe there's some agency 
required of us, of little old me, um, to have that experience. Maybe um, I don't fully realize, meaning realize, meaning embody, actualize this truth uh, when I stand on my on the top of my little pole. I'm going to share the koan again. Changsha had a a monk ask Master Hui, and this is very um, Chan Buddhist Zen, that um, monks and teachers were kind of roaming the country and testing each other and kind of... um, Using these questions to um, clarify their own understanding and those and that of others, so this—it's almost a little mischievous that this teacher asked a monk to go ask some other teacher a question for him, especially because then he end, ends up criticizing the answer that comes back. But um, but I think this is the way we um, maybe step off the pole itself as well. Are we willing to test our own understanding? Or do we protect it um, in the hopes that nobody will challenge us? Changsha had a monk ask Master Hui, how was it before you saw Nanquan? And I don't know the particulars of these characters, but I'm assuming Master Hui was a student of Nanquan. And when he says... um, before you saw him, before you met him, before you um, communed with your teacher, before... um, To see means to really see. Um, So before that happened for you with your teacher, how was it? Hui remained silent. The monk said, how about after seeing him? Hui said, there couldn't be anything else. So Hui's two answers were silence and then uh, it couldn't be any other way. The monk returned and related this to Changsha. <laughs> Here's Changsha's judgment. Changsha said, the man sitting atop the hundred foot pole Though he's gained entry, though he has some understanding of um, the vastness of awakening, this is not yet the real, or this is not yet complete truth. Atop the hundred-foot pole, he should step forward. The universe in all directions is the whole body. we step forward uh, it's a kind of vow it's a kind of trust that the whole universe is already us where are we going to go when we step off the pole or step off the curb or get in our car and drive somebody somewhere where can we go if we already are the whole universe so the monk Um, then kind of followed up with his teacher. He said, the monk said, atop the hundred-foot pole, how can you step forward? If you're encouraging us to step forward, tell us how to do that. Changsha said, the mountains of Lung, the rivers of Li. It's a very Chan answer. The mountains of Long, the rivers of Li. The monk said, I don't understand. That's a very honest answer. A good one sometimes. I don't get it. What are you trying to say? So Chang tries to help him out. He says, the whole land is under the imperial sway. The whole land is governed by the same laws and rules. 
if we really feel that or believe that, then it's not such a kind of difficulty to step forward. So I'm wondering if anybody has some thoughts they want to share or questions or comments. Yeah. Wonder about the vowel. Mm-hmm. If it's not only acknowledgement but um, taking responsibility for. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about um, like what it means to disavow something mm-hmm. as well as to avow it, mm-hmm. um, to reject it, to to dishonor it, to. Or to, to deny any involvement yeah. in somehow too, yeah. Yeah, so maybe maybe um, more, more than more than acknowledging, maybe but maybe less than responsibility. Mm-hmm. Right? A vow is something like I have some action in this. I, mm-hmm. I hold some place in this. I, yeah. I am it in some way. Yeah. And I don't I don't have to be it. Moving forward. Yeah. That's the precept. And and in in this sort of non-dual sense like I did I'm not necessarily the cause of where I am now but you're right vow a vow a vowel can include not just acceptance of this is where I am but also I think inherent in that acceptance the full acceptance of this is where I am I'm the only one that can take care of this now so that's the responsibility even if I didn't create it you know it's going to make my life easier if I take responsibility for it yeah thank you and I like to sort of just holding that it is a part of you. Mm-hmm. You know, that you, you, you're now aware of it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go away. <laughs> it's just good to be put in a box. Yeah. And you move forward with it, all of it. Yeah. I like that a lot because in this sort of dichotomy of the conventional and the ultimate, it often feels like we can either be this individual self, you know, and kind of me against the whole world, or a kind of, you know, blissful experience of like, we're already connected, it's all one thing or something. But those already seem like kind of a, a poles. And I think that a lot of my understanding of Zen practice is actually, there's the kind of sudden and the gradual. And the gradual means that each as I investigate my life and I investigate the multitudes that I am and the causes and conditions that with each new discovery it just gets included in this this one thing and that's the sort of individual kind of growing into the ultimate in a way if I each thing I come across I can accept as me as part of me as part of my life yeah and each person that you come in, in relationship to. Absolutely. In maybe one of the next paragraphs, category says something like, um, if we see that we are um, already in this sort of compassionate heart of the universe, and that each arising is actually the compassionate heart of the universe, then we naturally um, have compassion for these other things that are kind of arising with us. If we really feel that they're part of our life, compassion flows pretty naturally, actually. Yeah, did you have your hand up there? Yeah, Maureen. Tim, this might be related to what you were talking about just now, but if um, when you're on that 10,000 foot pole and then everything else around you is really part of the part of yourself and the universe, what would it mean to step off that? Mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah. <coughs> Where are you going to go? What could possibly happen to you if, <laughs> if it's all you? <coughs> But is it like a is it like a, a risk an acknowledgement a, you know what I mean so there's something about yeah. stepping off in it right and maybe yeah. is it kind of plunging between those two worlds of blissful la la you know and um, <laughs> isolated you know self yeah I think most of the time we live in the world of the isolated self until we are the Buddha until we are the fully awakened one we live in the individual self. 
and to the individual self, uh, stepping off the 100-foot pole can feel close to annihilation. It can feel like um, throwing our life away. But that's why Zen often uses the word death for enlightenment. That actually our, our kind of little me, in a, either kind of metaphorically, probably metaphorically, has to throw our life away. Like we have to step off the pole to realize it's not just the little me. Um, and that's tremendously scary. Um, and most of the time we're not willing to do it. Um, and then we have lots of other practices of kind of compassion for ourselves. you know. Like, I know I should do something and I'm not doing it. Ugh, you know. But, um, but that's just the kind of the me that's arising right now. And I avow that one, you know. So I think all these, all the precepts are turning us back to fully being just this being, you know, fully being whoever I am in whatever circumstances I am. In the way that I was talking about the precepts being. Um, conventional or ultimate there was a Tibetan monk I was reading um, who called it um, like inside and outside like if I, if I look outside myself all I see are individual things but if I really go inside everything kind of becomes one and it's counterintuitive because we all like when we're trying, when we're feeling lost, we're often looking out there for the thing that's going to make me. And this is kind of how we take refuge in maybe the wrong thing sometimes. Um, we think something out there is what's going to kind of make us feel okay. And then somehow we, we get encouraged to just kind of come back to, it's okay to be this thing, whatever I am. And in that... Uh, there's a feeling of kind of being connected and united, at least in my experience. Yeah, Ernest. Could we try a three-foot pole first? Yeah. <laughs> so, say that again. Could we what? A shorter pole. Yeah, sure. Sure, maybe we can work up to the hundred-foot pole. <laughs> Who's building hundred-foot poles? I don't know. I always, for some reason, I always think of telephone poles. Like, they're not 100 foot. No, they're not. They're not. But it would feel like 100 foot to stand on top of one. And the consequences would probably be the same if you stepped off of one. But I often wonder about the pole. Yeah. I mean, is it a, like a flexible pole? <laughs> and does it have a platform? Or is there a ball? And am I barefoot? Clean with my hands. <laughs> or, you know, it's like, what about that pole? <laughs> it's the curious thing. Yeah. We make our own poles. But mm-hmm. what are you making it? How this is what I'm thinking. Yeah. Question. However, your fears are <clears throat> your, your own prison, your own, your own box, you're in. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think prior to to those rare moments where we have the courage to step off the pole and just see what happens, most of those other moments, I think the practice is investigating, where am I? Like, what what kind of pole is this? Um, uh, What does it feel like to me be standing on this pole day after day? You know, um, and through that study... I think that's how we let go of our attachment to just sort of, this is the only pole I know, so I'm just going to stay here, you know. It's a way to remain separate. Yeah, but but also just what's familiar is so easy to kind of um, get caught in. I think we make it comfortable, you know, it's like you bet your recliner up there. Because we don't, you know, we get, we get so stuck in this life and it's hard to make that big change over to see the world for what it really is. Yeah. But I think the world helps us. Like, 
the recliner eventually like gets threadbare and the springs pop out and like, the TV goes on the fritz and you know the things we rely on that we think are giving us comfort are are impermanent impermanent permanent. And that helps us, because then it's like, it reminds us, like, well, maybe I should find something that's not quite so impermanent, you know. I'll get to you, Tracy. There's one guy in the back here. Well, I was going to say, it's probably driven by my fear of heights, but when you mentioned the pole, all I was thinking is you have to balance the whole time, and so you have to focus only on yourself. Mm. And you can't really look at anything else, at least in my vision, of mm-hmm. being on a pole. Mm-hmm. But... If you get weary, you're going to eventually fall off anyway, and why not? So you're going to fall into the world versus mm-hmm. taking that step yeah. intentionally into the world. Yeah. And so I just, I don't know, I just kind of thought. Yeah. That's sort of my, you know, in, in terms of like, what is the pole like? That's the sort of pole that I imagine too. It's like, it's a pretty anxious place to be because you, you it, it brings you to this moment but it's a kind of closed down like I can't do anything or I might fall off the pole um, and in a weird way maybe like our life has to feel that emergency kind of stimulus for us to really tune into where we are and really consider maybe some other way if we're too comfortable you know, what's the motivation to, to do anything differently? Um, Tracy. Oh, yeah, this whole discussion is really interesting. I think part of the idea, and I'd like to say something that ties into it, yeah. on this, but that, that uh, when you're up there, well, you know you can't stay. Mm-hmm. That's part of being up there, you can't stay. Because it's threadbare, or TV's on the fritz, or, you know, these metaphors for it. The conditions of our life that have brought us to that place where, where as folks have characterized it as um, an anxious place, prison of our mind, or you know, it's like mm-hmm. we are we are ready to do something. Different. At certain moments, sometimes we're asleep to even that kind of awareness. We think it's okay. I'm just hanging out on a pole. It's all right. But um, but I agree. I, I think what actually catapults us into practice, into kind of considering some other way, is the awareness that I can't really live here. You know, I can't stay here. Yeah. And what I want to kind of tie into that was what you were saying earlier about uh, well, you know, a lot of big words, a lot of big concepts. Uh, Refuge, yeah. Uh, refuge, but I did like when you were kind of uh, asking people to explore, well, what is that, this uh, refuge, mm-hmm. uh, and in what? Mm-hmm. And it really touched me because that was kind of bringing it back down to, um, like, so, and then as you put it, you said, where do you go to find total rest? Yeah. I really like that. Um, because what you were saying that it is amidst all the coming and going, it is our lives. It is very tiring, <laughs> right? You know, all the coming and going of our experiences. You know, yeah, we get tired of this yeah. dance of trying to find the thing that will make us feel safe now. You know, <coughs> and, and then that kind of wears out, and what's the thing that's going to make me feel safe now? Yeah, so it's so exhausting. So for me, that question then became, so what is it experientially that is not coming and going? Mm. Say that again. So recognizing how tiring yeah. all is coming and going is. Yeah. Uh, and beginning with the question where you go to find total rest. Yeah. Yeah. So the question became, so what is it experientially is in your life, in your, in your experience now, mm-hmm. that is not coming and going? Mm-hmm. And what is it that you can rely on? Yes. That's not a question you get to answer. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. But I, but I will add that, that what that is, is right here. It's yeah. not somewhere else. It's not some other place. Exactly. And then you actually did go on to answer, <laughs> answer the question of, as in, as in form of, in the compassionate heart of the universe. 
which can then send out like a little elevated again, a little out there, mm -hmm. a little hard, mm -hmm. a little removed, a little like, oh, really? Yeah. That sounds good, but yeah. what the, and then the question, then it's the same question again. Uh, uh, so experientially now, what would that look like? Mm -hmm. What would that be? Turning back on yourself. Yeah, and and trust me, not all Zen teachers talk like this either. This is kind of a particular to Katagiri Roshi, is this very benevolent kind of feeling of reality. It's very sweet. It's touching. Well, I think I think you got it. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <That's amazing. laughs> this, this not coming and going. That's, mm -hmm. That, that compassionate heart. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. What book of this was that? Generally? This is from Returning to Silence, and it's um, kind of in the middle of the book. He talks about the precepts, but it's like if you've ever read any other books about the precepts, they're unrecognizable in here. It's all kind of about uh, our inherent Buddha nature. And it's a good reminder that when we think, when we have a project, we think we're practicing the precepts, we think we're trying to do the right thing, that the goal isn't to like get it right and do the right thing all the time. It's actually to have ourselves drop below that into a kind of knowing of uh, the compassionate heart. Yes, last question. Sometimes... Uh someone will sort of fall off the pole accidentally uh -huh. um, without having planned on doing that. Yeah. And then it's terrifying. You scrabble your way back onto the pole. And then uh, it seems like um, stepping off the pole, um, I don't know, I mean, it, it seems like it, it, it's an, there's an accidental falling off sometimes. <coughs> And then trying to find how to jump off as an act of choice seems impossible. In other mm. words, it seemed seems like well, if sometimes it just happens when you're not expecting it, mm -hmm. and and so you know it's sort of a paradox there. Um, I, I I don't know what you just say. Pra practice over time makes those accidents more. Mm -hmm. More possible, or more likely to happen, or what? Because the, you know, actually choosing to step off, I've not found how to do that. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I feel like I want to say whenever we experience that, that exiting the pole and being okay um, that, that we're already we're, I have this belief that we're already doing something that's creating that whether we think we're actively stepping off or whether we just sort of accidentally fell off into the heart of the universe like there's a kind of way we've already put ourselves in some place and time that that's kind of happening um but I was interested in this commentator, because I always imagine the top of the pole to me sounded like an achievement. Like, wow, you climbed 100 feet up and now you're up there. Um, and I think that is a traditional understanding of like, um, you found some realization, you've kind of, you've attained something and then you get stuck there. You're kind of like, well, look what I've created. You know, it becomes personal maybe. Um, and that the next step is letting go of whatever you've achieved. You know, if you've climbed 100 feet, to let go is to step off. But I was interested in this commentator who says, maybe you ended up on the pole because you fell from a higher one, you know. Um, maybe there's lots of poles, and we just kind of have to get to know the one we're on. Um, does that speak to your question? So, yeah. I wasn't sure what you meant by um, accidentally falling off. Well, just to put it, you know, less 
oracularly, um, you know, experiences where poof, you're gone, right? And there's just, there is no subject, there is no object, there's just what is. But that leaves it very rare and accidental. And practice maybe you know, sort of thins out this, uh, this sort of hard link to self. But as far as just sort of falling into my duality, that it doesn't seem to be anything that I can prepare for or work toward. So that's what I was thinking of as falling into yeah. sort of falling into non-duality. Yeah. And again, I think like I don't think that happens accidentally very often. Like, I don't think we have bus drivers who are driving a bus and then suddenly, like, everything drops away and they don't have a body, you know? I think when it happens, it's usually in some... There's some intention already having been set. Whether it's like A... It, and I don't... I'm not saying that A equals B. Like, if you sit down in just this way, you'll drop off into emptiness. But... Um, Anyway, it'd be you know it'd be interesting to talk a little more about this, but I you know my first response is that like there's something already happening when we accidentally fall into non-duality. Yeah. Is it taking refuge when you start to internalize this sense of this larger reality that allows you to take the step? It Even helps. though you may not be, maybe in COVID. So yeah. it seems like an accident, but you've been starting to take refuge. Yeah, that's sort of where I'm going, I think. Yeah, that it's, even if it's unconscious, there's already a kind of, and, and they talk about bodhicitta has a couple different meanings. And the one that always struck me was that it's this first awakening to the possibility of, of enlightenment. The first awakening to the possibility of practice before you begin practice. Um, it's a testing of, can I trust this? Yeah. But I think, you know, the sort of awareness that it might be trustable is, is often, you know, not consciously known yet when, but I think you're right, I think it's feeding that, that, that okayness with stepping forward. But it's a chicken or the egg. Like, if we step forward, sometimes we confirm that it's okay to step forward. But sometimes the fact that it's okay to step forward can kind of allows us to step forward. So I think, um, yeah. Yes, last question. So I'm thinking that's where the guy was who was asked the question. It's like, you know, Still in his dualistic self. In the Cohen story. In the Cohen story. Yeah. The the Changsha, the, the the teacher that like gets asked the question. The, yeah, the person yeah. that asked the question. Yeah. And after the teacher, he was at that point you're just talking about. It's like having seen something, having fallen accidentally, sort of, mm -hmm. but but still sort of on the pole. Mm -hmm. Right, like, is that what the teacher, his teacher was seeing? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> you saw something. Yeah, and this comes up in a lot of Zen stories yeah. that, and it and it's a kind of truism about human mind or perception that when we get something, um, you know, it's not us that's gotten it. It's right. it's pretty impersonal, but like then we make it, you know, our mind, you know, our ego gets involved and wants to make it personal, like look what happened to me, you know. And that um, is often the kind of end point of people's practice. Right. Um, and so all of these teachers are sort of like, keep going, keep going, yeah. Um, don't fall in love with the experience you've already had. But yeah, I mean, the, the way I was seeing the metaphor was climbing the pole was that first kind of awakening. Like, wow, I can do, I can get all the way up here. And then we think, oh, that's it. Yeah. And then 
some teacher introduces us to the possibility that now we have to do something even harder. Wow. But, you know, that's what it takes to confirm, to actualize our, even whatever little awareness we have. We have to test it. All right, well, thank you all for being here this afternoon, this morning.